One thing we must recognize, even with the new Treasury authorities, some financial institutions will fail. Hi, and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Laura Conaway. That was Treasury Secretary Henry Paulson you just heard. He was delivering the bad news yesterday. And today is Thursday, October 9th. It is 5.37 p.m. here in New York. If you want to know how the economy is doing today, sure, the Dow is a disaster. That's not what we look at here. We look at the TED spread, and it is bad. It is up 8 0.118% from yesterday, four and a quarter, 4.23. That's a scary number. That means uh, credit markets are, scare, are as scared as they've ever been. Yeah, the TED spread should be less than one. Yep. Nowhere near that. At least, at least less than one, you know. We have been reporting for several days now that the $700 billion bailout is not entirely what it appears to be. That's because a few key legislators, and we actually are not quite clear yet who, snuck in a plan that economists like a lot better than the original Paulson plan. Today, that plan finally made it to the front pages. Uh, Here's the deal. The bailout law allows the U.S. Treasury to buy up mortgages from banks that we knew about. But the market doesn't really care about that as much as this other thing. So what the market wants is for the government to come in and recapitalize the bank, which means basically get them enough money to stay afloat. And it now appears, we learned yesterday from Treasury Secretary Paulson, that that is what Treasury is going to do. They're going to sort of semi-nationalize the banks. They're going to use taxpayer money, our money, to buy shares of the banks not only troubled mortgages or bundles of mortgages, actual stock in the banks. We called up Christian Managati. He's with our good friends at RGE Monitor and asked him whether taking ownership of banks is a big priority for Treasury Secretary Henry Paulson. This should have been from from the beginning, the recapitalization of the banks, uh, um, a priority for the Treasury. And I believe that uh, it was, the Treasury was not able to, to include this uh, in the initial uh, uh, draft of, this, of, the legis- of, of the legislation. And, and actually, it's not explicit even in the legislation that was passed. Now, wait, so wait, strong... Cri- Christian, you're saying, sure. that, you're saying that this priority for Treasury to come in is not explicit in the bill? No, it's absolutely not explicit in the bill. In fact, the bill says, uh, let's let's just uh, look at the name of the bill, the Trouble Asset Relief Program. Wait, Caitlin, can you stop the tape right there? So the name of this is the Troubled Asset Relief Program, and it actually turns out that from Christian's perspective and from a lot of others, the future of the U.S. economy may depend on the definition of that word asset, that okay. second word in there. Uh, from a bank's perspective, an asset is the opposite of what we think of an asset. When you have a mortgage loan, when you have a car loan, that to you is a liability. It's something you have to pay every month. But the bank's the one getting the money. So for them, it's an asset. For them, a liability is something they have to pay every month, which means stocks. You might own some bank stocks and you think, oh, that's an asset to me. But to a bank, at least according to the technical accounting definition, that's a liability. So the law is gives the Treasury authority to buy assets which, according to a strict legal definition, would mean only these mortgage-backed security-type things, these kind of lousy 
things that nobody wants. What Christian Menegatti wants is to broaden that definition of asset to a more vague and general term to mean something of value. So he says that most of Congress didn't know the language was in there or didn't understand it. I think it's under, they didn't understand it. Yeah. He was saying that in the debate, they just started using this expanded definition of the word asset, right? Right. And that got this expanded definition into the congressional record, set a legal precedent to allow the Treasury Secretary to buy stock in the companies rather than just buying the assets. It's such a fascinating, weird intersection of politics and law. Yeah, it is sneaky, but it's also kind of, might be kind of wonderful. I mean, if the many economists and the vast majority of economists we talk to uh, say it is the smart thing to do, the right thing to do, then it's kind of cool that we end up there even though they didn't admit in public that that's what they were going for. Manigotti says we have to end up and at this point because recapitalizing the banks is the key to an economic recovery. So recapitalization is, uh, is, uh, is a no-brainer. It's definitely what has to happen for, uh, for banks to start operating again uh, in a healthy way. But I have to say, it still, to me, feels a little bit like an end run in a way that I don't like. But Christian basically says I, I should just sit down on that part. He doesn't really see it as an end run, and he doesn't think that my feelings about it or your feelings about the transparency involved are really that important. I, I would tell you that Congress uh, managed to, to pass a legislation that uh, allows the Treasury to do the right thing. I know, and that's the, the part should that... Be, should be happy. Should that's be happy the part that, that really happen. shocks me. Congress did the right thing. That alone <laughs> shocks me. i got to be honest. I hope that's not biased because I, I mean that in a bipartisan way. I'm so heaping scorn in a bipartisan fashion. Well, uh, politics and economics haven't always meshed very they well. They haven't meshed well, and I usually come from the economic angle. But they did the right thing, and it's just I, I want us to really pay a lot of attention to how did this happen. They, the The machinery of our government was heading in what almost any economist would tell you is the wrong direction. They couldn't say they were heading in the right direction, but they just kind of did it. Why, in this case, do you all think they could not come out and say what they thought needed to be done? Because the banking lobby would have killed them. That, that's, that's where the difficulties and the pressures uh, come when it's time to design a, um, a bailout uh, of, of these proportions uh, that effectively nationalizes uh, the banking system of a country that, uh, uh, you know, ideologically is not... Uh, uh, close to uh, nationalization of, uh, of, uh, of, of, the, of the economy. So if you don't like the lack of transparency, blame the bank lobbyists. They're very powerful, and they have made it clear to us. I mean, our, our, we've called him our favorite bank lobbyist, Scott Talbot of the Financial Services Roundtable. He was very explicit. You know, this is not in our interest. We don't want the Treasury Secretary to use this power to basically take ownership stakes in banks, and we're going to fight it. So we want to let our Planet Money listeners know we are going to stick with the story. We are all over it. We're going to figure out who snuck it in. We're going to figure out if the Treasury Secretary is going to use it. And uh, we're certainly going to be talking a lot to people like Christian Manigotti, his boss, Nouriel Rabini, at the RGE Monitor. And we want to thank them for the tip, for the head start. So, Adam, I have this guy, Greg King. Hey, Greg. He's from Falls Church, Virginia, and he's got this question. I was wondering, in terms of the mortgage-backed securities that seem to be the heart of this uh, financial problem, you know, what 
could be done with those uh, to to find the good mortgages and break them away from the bad and and you know get the the complexity out of them so that the, the securities could be evaluated. You mean sort of split them all up again? Yeah. You're talking about mortgage-backed securities, which is a way of taking a thousand or five thousand individual mortgages, putting them all in a big box, a big financial box, and then selling shares in that box. That's that complexity has caused all these problems. So why can't we just go in there and and take them apart? Right. Well, that is an excellent question. That is a crucial question, and we're going to have to answer that in an extended form. That's a huge question, and I'm not sure anyone can really answer it, but the government sure has to take a stab. And I did meet some guys this week who are starting to look at these assets in these giant bundles of mortgages and these more complex securitized products we keep hearing about. These guys specialize in something called a CDO, a collateralized debt obligation, and all us American taxpayers are about to own a bunch of these CDOs. That's part of this uh, can't wait. asset. Yeah, those are the toxic assets. We're about to use our $700 billion to buy at least part of them. Uh, basically, CDOs are, you can think of it as like a financial container. You put a whole bunch of investments in, and then you sell shares to that container to lots of people who then get money every month that is paid by those investments. And uh, those a CDO can sort of contain any sort of investment that pays a regular cash stream. Uh, one of the most popular investments to put in a CDO are these subprime mortgages, the ones that are called toxic waste, um, exactly the type of assets the government is looking to scoop up and save the economy. Uh, the only problem is that since no one else wants to buy them, these CDOs or the assets that are in them, the government basically has to invent a price for them because there is no market price. There is nobody's buying and selling. So there's no supply, no demand. We don't know what the price is. So they have the government's going to have to figure out a way to come up with the number. They're going to put a bunch of numbers into a computer. They're going to churn out some guess, frankly, about what these CDO products are worth and what they might be worth in the future. So we wanted to understand how this worked. So um, I asked Mike Pesca to come join me, our NPR colleague, our sports correspondent. Um, he and I talked to Witt Solberg and H.J. Kim. They're the founding partners of Mission Peak Capital. These guys have sort of been all over this business. They were involved in making CDOs, actually creating these financial instruments uh, back uh, many years ago at Deutsche Bank. Um, then they worked at Fitch, one of the rating agencies where they rated them. Now they work with companies that own them and are trying to figure out how to sell them to the government. So these guys basically do what the government now has to do. They value these toxic assets. We decided to look at one CDO in particular to try and get a sense of what's in it. It's called Coronado. It was put together by Deutsche Bank, and uh, this one closed in 2003, although it also has assets from later. These things are very complicated. Um, and it contains some of these toxic assets and a whole lot of weird stuff that just surprised me. There were loans on, it, it depends, it could be on a plane, it could be on specific airline routes, uh, and so forth, and it was a way that... Wait, 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 you, how can you have a loan of an airline route? <laughs> well, you know, it's, it, it, you could get receivables from, uh, a, 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 an airline would say, look, from, we used to, between Tokyo and Korea, there was a, there was a, a, a flight that was loaded up every, every Friday night. 
And Korean Airlines came and they said, look, we need, we would like to get a loan for a plane or some planes on that particular route. And what we will do is everybody that buys a ticket for that plane will pay, the, the ticket will be paid into a trust. And that trust will pay itself interest and then give the extra amount of money to Korean Airlines. And um, so what the way that... That loan, that trust, when it was receiving those payments, was basically getting money before the airline was. And the airline used uh, the loan that they got to buy a bunch of planes and to bolster up the route, and that's how they financed themselves. And the reason they did it this way is they didn't want to get – you could believe in a specific route, but you didn't want to get caught up in the problems with the entire airline or the airline's business or its other financing So I don't own Korean Airlines. I just – all I care about is Korea Japan. You 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 own this particular route, and not just any Korea Japan. I own Fridays at seven. That's that that's a possibility, or dailies at seven, or something like that, and and that's the way you'd get paid. And you can you can evaluate passenger loads and potential for new competition and all of this other stuff. And and investors like that because it was simple. And and they this but they not sound simple. <laughs> well, they, all right. they liked it because they could get a, they could box up. You know, a company is a living and breathing thing, and and it can go in a lot of different directions and make a lot of bad decisions. And if you make a loan to a company, you you have to bear that risk. But if you if you can isolate a specific route or a specific market, and you can trap all of the cash that comes off of that first, it's actually a very, it's a better credit. It's an easier to understand credit. Yeah, it seems like some calcu- a formula and calculations you put those numbers in easily. Every first year business school should be able to figure out. Your expected cash flow from that, and mm-hmm. you don't worry about the other externalities. Wow, that's interesting. Well, and people don't. I didn't know you could buy a route. And, <laughs> and people don't know. And, and that's just one example yeah. of an air, aircraft security. But but um, one of the so a lot of these deals, they can be a little complicated. There's not a real big market for it, and so one of the homes for it is in a CDO, and. To be honest, they're performing quite well. Uh, the airlines, you know, you read about the airline business having all these problems with fuel and everything else. So, well, you know, the way these deals are structured are very good credits. And, um, you know, if they don't pay, you get a plane and you sell a plane and you get your money back. Um, so I just want to summarize with this one CDO, Coronado CDO, mm-hmm. I could – I could live in a home and pay my mortgage, and part of that mortgage payment goes to Coronado CDO. Mm -hmm. Then I could go to my office, and my office building is paying its mortgage, which is also partly going to Coronado CDO. Mm -hmm. On my way to work, I could make a cell phone call, and and the cell phone tower that handles my call is sending money, part of which goes to the CDO. And then I could fly home to visit my mother from Phoenix to Topeka, Mm -hmm. and... That f- ticket I'm paying is going to the CDO. That's right. And that's why you've just basically summarized why the whole financial markets are linked by CDOs. And and some of the, the, the disappearance of this product type has had to change the people that build cell towers, that build office buildings, re- real estate, uh, residential loans, get financing. And, 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 and so that big bank, which was CDOs, is now missing from the market. Adam, that is kind of crazy. I know. These things are – it's so weird to see because we want to buy the subprime mortgages, but these CDOs come with so many other things that we're going to be owning, these airplane routes. He said not this CDO, but other CDOs have something called a Bowie bond. A David Bowie bond? A David Bowie bond. (laughs) You actually can – 
you can secure you can get a bond based on David Bowie's expected future earnings. They also have other famous people's royalty streams. So the U.S. government might effectively own That's David Bowie. There's a lot of things from England called pub securitizations. H.J. says they're actually one of the better okay. investments these days. What's that? Um, basically, you own the cash stream from a bunch of pubs. Pubs, in the bars. United Ki- bars, yeah, in the United <laughs> Kingdom. So, I'm sorry. Um, so... We really love H.J. and Wit, and we're going to spend a lot of time with them over the next few weeks. We're thinking of actually doing a road trip CDO valuation. We talked about that this morning. Of actually, I want to go to the pub evaluation part. I would love to go to the pub evaluation part. We want to take one of these CDOs that the U.S. government is going to buy and just figure out what is inside. So last week we heard from this guy Tom Corona at Tradition Asia Securities. He was saying that the short-term lending market had just completely frozen up. Right. And now the government is stepping into that. It's backing up that stuff. So things have got to get better, right? No. 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 Um, we, we, uh, we talked to Tom Corona a couple weeks ago. We put him on This American Life. We've, um, he was really helpful. And we were hoping things had been – that was before the bailout. That was before the tr- feds um, changed to back this com- commercial paper. So t- so yesterday we called his coworker. He just sits a few desks away, named Will Aston Reese. He's one of these short-term money market brokers at Tradition Asia. Actually, we heard of some uh, big flows going through in six months. I don't I don't believe we saw them here, but we heard of a few billion trading uh, to various European names in the uh, six months uh, right around LIBOR. Is that exciting? Um, I'm sure it was. Exciting. You're nodding. It's big. It's the sort of you're stuck in the ice and you just see the tiniest crack sort of thing. We didn't do the trades, so we don't know the sizes, we don't know the names, so we don't. We just heard stuff traded. Well, hearing stuff traded is better than not hearing stuff traded. That's 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 all I had to say. I don't want to say anything else. And so it's that you didn't even see your ice crack. You saw some other guy's ice, maybe crack. You heard a rumor that someone's ice might have cracked. And Wall Street is one big game of telephone. It could have been a fifty million trade that by the time it got to us it turned into a billion. So now if I came here six weeks ago and say, Hey, did you hear a billion traded in six months? You wouldn't even pay attention. Beyond. We'll be ordering lunch. <laughs> What's for lunch? Since Will's not doing anything in CDs, what is he doing down there? Well the main thing he's doing is talking to his customers, trying to let them know that uh What's going on, helping them understand why they can't get any money, why they can't borrow any money in these short-term markets. Um, He has been able to make some money selling treasury bills. Uh, Basically what's happening is investors and other banks won't lend any money to to any banks because they don't trust them. So they're putting all their money in treasury bills, which are considered absolutely safe because these are issued by the U.S. government. Uh, so the U.S. government pays very little interest because they don't have to pay a high interest to convince people to buy them right now. Had somebody come in looking for treasury bills. They want to buy out of today, and the offering is one basis point. One basis point? One basis point. One penny on a dollar. One penny. That's the lowest one I've ever heard of. Uh, bills traded at zero last week. There were some bills that actually transacted at zero. They just want to put it in the mattress. Exactly. So what do these guys think needs to be done? 
These guys are pretty unimpressed by what's happened so far. They say the $700 billion bailout is not going to open up these short-term credit markets. He he said it's like spitting in an ocean to raise the water level. They insist that what has to happen is the government needs to guarantee all deposits in all the major banks, not this FDIC thing up to 250000 but all deposits full stop or else banks won't start lending to each other. And that affects all of us because if banks don't lend to each other, they don't lend to you. They don't lend to me. They don't lend to your boss who pays your salary and on and on. The, the interbank market basically in, in the United States, not basically, the interbank market is frozen for the simple reason that, and you hear this everywhere you turn, banks are afraid to lend to each other. And until the U.S. Treasury stops the primping and posturing of we're going to take an owner stake, ownership stake here, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, all they need to do is say one thing, we guarantee deposits six months and in, and this will loosen up. I think it's worth pointing out that uh, the economists we talked to are really hot on this buying stock in yeah, the companies. I was These say, guys hate the idea. That's amazing. Yeah, it's really interesting. They say the economists are too off in the air somewhere. They don't understand the real uh, fundamentals of the market. We're going to be talking to both economists and these guys. We're going to be checking in with tradition Asian securities as often as we can. I love these guys. Actually, I talked to a whole bunch of guys, got great tape, and we just don't have time to get to it all right now. But we're going to be hearing from those tradition Asian guys a lot here on Planet Money. You can listen for Adam's story. Friday on Morning Edition. And keep sending us questions. We we really like hearing your questions. We also want to know, how are we doing? Are, are we helping you understand this crisis? Is there, are there things we could do better? PlanetMoney at NPR.org or just visit us at NPR.org slash money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Laura Conaway. Thanks for listening.